this episode was pre-recorded as part of a live continuing education webinar. On-demand CEUs are still available for this presentation through all CEUs. Register at allceus.com slash counselor toolbox. This episode of Counselor Toolbox has been sponsored in part by Foundations Events. As the behavioral health industry evolves, the need for collaboration is greater than ever. Join Foundations Events at the Innovations in Behavioral Healthcare Conference, June 20th and 21st in Nashville. Focused on listening to both the patient and provider, this conference offers two days of sessions that follow the journey from meeting the patient where they are to helping them find recovery. Special pricing for licensed clinicians is available with the opportunity to earn over 20 CEUs. Visit foundationsevents.com slash counselor toolbox for more information and to register today. I'd like to welcome everybody to today's presentation on mindfulness and acceptance of addictive behaviors using contextual CBT. Now that's a mouthful. I am Dr. Donnelly Snipes and I will be facilitating this discussion. We're going to define and review the concepts of contextual cognitive behavioral therapy, and that's really what we're going to focus on. I've had people ask me before, what is contextual CBT as opposed to just regular old CBT? And we're going to talk a lot about that. We'll explore the impact of context on people's phenomenological reality. That is, everybody has a different reality based on their experiences. We'll explore how addiction and mental health issues can be influenced by context, and we'll explore how acceptance, awareness, mindfulness, and psychological flexibility can be used transdiagnostically. The short, the layperson's version of that, if you will, is that acceptance, awareness, mindfulness, and psychological flexibility are really excellent tools regardless of whether you're dealing with addiction or depression or anxiety or PTSD, they can be very useful tools. And contextual CBT kind of fits right in there. So let's look at some of this. Why contextual? Addiction and mental health issues are often intergenerational. So we know that there's something of a, well, we guess that there's something of a nurture component in addition to the nature component. Addiction and mental health issues are strongly correlated with each other. So if people have addiction issues, then a lot of times we expect a co-occurring disorder. Anxiety, depression, PTSD, bipolar, you know, the gamut. What does this mean? Well, we know that these things are correlated with each other. So if they're correlated with each other, then they may have similar etiological factors like lack of awareness, lack of coping skills, whatever. So if we start addressing those etiological factors, we may be addressing both issues. Well, that's a, that's a great thing. Addiction and mental health issues are strongly correlated with adverse childhood experiences. People who have a history of ACEs tend to have a higher risk of developing addiction or mental health issues or both. People who have had adverse childhood experiences also are at higher risk of having children who also experience addiction and mental health issues or and or expose their children to adverse childhood experiences, namely addiction and mental health issues. You see how all this kind of folds in on one another. People with addiction and mental health issues um, often have impaired occupational and social functioning. That doesn't mean that they're not able to work. So a lot of people are high-functioning and able to work, but they are not working up to their capacity. What somebody who has clinical depression is able to do is not what they would be able to do if they were feeling 
like they were on their A game. And addiction and mental health issues are also strongly correlated to health problems. People who have addiction and mental health issues tend to have more health problems. Well, let's think about why. With addiction and mental health issues, what do we know? The neurotransmitters get mucked up. Neurotransmitters are involved in a lot of stuff from pain perception to the HPA axis. Let's just pull out that HPA axis. Okay, people who have a lot of stress or PTSD or anxiety or hypocortisolism are probably going to experience more health problems that are re stress related high blood pressure, obesity, um, chronic pain, autoimmune diseases, those sorts of things. We do want to recognize that all of these things are present. So if you've got somebody who has addiction and say they have an addiction and depression and they also have fibromyalgia, you know, they are going to need a different approach and they're probably going to react differently to things than someone who may have addiction but not a mental health issue and not fibromyalgia so we do want to look at the context and really look at the individual and ask ourselves in what way is this person reacting in a way that makes sense and the other part of this that we haven't talked about yet is functionality in contextual cbt the emphasis is on examining behaviors in terms of what is their function we don't do things just for the heck of making ourselves miserable there is some sort of function in there, and we're going to talk about that a lot more as we go through. Contextual approaches encourage mindfulness in the present, encourage people to be aware of their surroundings, their feelings, their thoughts, their urges. It accepts each person's truth as being constructed from their schema their brain and the resulting interpretation of the current moment. So you take somebody's past history and you plop them in a situation and the way they interpret that situation is going to be filtered by their or influenced by their past history take sally sally is an adult now but she grew up in a household where her father was a very angry alcoholic and sally gets into a relationship with john and John's a good guy, you know, whatever. They're just going about their business. One day, John just gets rip-roaring drunk and comes home and he is, you know, snot-faced. And <laughs> Sally gets very, very tense and very, very upset and very, very stressed out. Now, why is that? Because Sally's experiences with a intoxicated individual have been very negative and associated with you know violence and anger and that sort of thing so when she experiences this it triggers those past memories this is why sally reacts strongly and negatively when she's exposed to that and there are things that are more subtle if a person grows up in a family where communication is poor but there are certain sounds or facial expressions that they're they're they receive that tell them that the stuff is about to hit the fan then when they experience when they see those facial expressions on their friends on their partners in the future they're going to be triggered because that facial expression is conditioned to mean bad mojo they see that in the future and they expect 
bad mojo. Does it mean that it's going to happen? No. And that's when we're, what we're going to talk about as we go through this. Contextual approaches help people ferret out the past from the present and make an educated, conscious decision about how to act. The goal in contextual approaches is to consider the context and function of the past and present issue and empower the person to make a conscious choice towards their valued goals. Okay, so Sally, you grew up in a household with an angry alcoholic father. And so when you see people get really drunk, it is stressful because it reminds you of those things and you expect people to become angry and belligerent when they're drunk because of your past learning. You're in this present moment. John is drunk as a skunk. However, being mindful of the present moment, you recognize that your past has taught you some things. But in this present moment, is John being angry and belligerent? Okay. So recognizing that in order to check what's going on and figure out what the next step is. And then figuring out, okay, based on Sally's past, what kind of discussion may she need to have with John about getting really drunk and coming home? That is, those are all issues that she can consider and make a conscious choice about, is this something I need to address because I'm never going to be okay with him being super drunk? Remember that the prefix re means to do it again. We repeat things. We redo things. We regress sometimes, going back to childhood or older behaviors. We relapse, going back into prior ways of being, and we react. And this is what we're talking about with contextual approaches. We're helping people move to action from reaction. Reaction is like autopilot. You experience something and you react. You act the way you always have because it reminds you of situations you've been in before. And this autopilot schema kicks in. We want them to be able to be mindful, accept, and then act. The family context can be a preventative or a risk factor for the development of issues. Some families are really supportive and awesome and spot on. Some families are really not, and most families are somewhere in between. Children develop schema about themselves, about others, and the world through these early interactions. We've talked a lot about primary attachment. But even further than that, you've got your primary attachment issue uh, figure, which is a really important issue but after that child's 12 18 months growing up there are other people in their household to whom they're attached not that same type of primary attachment but they have attachments to their other caregivers to their siblings to their pets whatever and by the way the others in their household react to them they learn a lot about themselves by the way, the others in their family and in their household react to stress. They learn how to cope with stress. We do a lot of social learning as children. And all of this helps us form our schemas about what to expect in the world. In later life, people continue to develop schema influenced by their past learning. If they grew up in a household that was just grand, then they may get into relationships and expect things to be just grand. And those schema may have to be slightly adjusted uh, based on 
new experiences. We're constantly learning. We're constantly adjusting those schema. But they're always being influenced by our past. You always have that, those um, archives, if you will, that your brain is going back to. And it's important to be mindful and to help our clients be mindful of when they're reacting to the present and when they are reacting to the past or they're seeing life or they're seeing the situation in a alternate point of view because they're viewing it through the lens of the past versus through the lens of the present. Think about people who've gotten into relationships. You know, we've all been in probably multiple relationships in our life. And if you expect every single person you're in a relationship with to act and react the same way, you're going to be very confused when it doesn't happen. When you, if somebody was in a less than healthy relationship and then they start seeing similar behaviors in their next relationship, they may assume that it is getting ready to go down that less than healthy path. It's important to check with themselves and check with the present and go, okay, am I just projecting stuff from the past or do these behaviors mean the same exact thing in this particular situation? I'm informed and I can make a conscious choice to act instead of just gut reaction and, and getting out of the relationship. We've talked a lot so far about the effect of context. And our context can't be emphasized enough. And we're going to talk a lot today about childhood context. But your context is always important because your context in the present influences things. For example, this weekend, you know, the context, when you go to a friend's house, how do you dress? What do you wear? The context tells you what you're supposed to do. When you go to the movies, when you, you know, whatever the context is, we have schema that tell us this is how we should, quote unquote, dress, behave, act, etc. So our context gives us a lot of information. To help children have the best start, to encourage them to be as resilient as possible, they need an environment that's characterized by consistent, you know, age-appropriate responsiveness. Now, those are three things kind of glumped together. Parents need to understand at some level what a child is capable of understanding and rationalizing and for example think about um hide and go seek or peekaboo let's say peekaboo little kids real little kids can play peekaboo forever it seems like and it never gets old and it's hard to understand from our perspective how covering my eyes and then going peekaboo is so surprising to a little child, but understanding that that child may not have developed object permanence yet. So when you duck down behind the sofa, in that child's mind, you're gone. And then suddenly you reappear. And they learn to predict the world. They learn to predict and develop object permanence over time as they see you consistently come back and then they start making the connection. That's age appropriate. Expecting a a very, very small child to know, quote-unquote, that you're going to come back, not going to happen. 
age appropriateness, we really want to think about Ericsson and remember the stages, trust versus mistrust, autonomy, industry, and identity. That gets you up through high school. As parents, we need to encourage them and, and be responsive to helping them establish or develop this characteristic. Trust in the beginning. A consistent, responsive parent is going to be able to help the child meet their needs when they're cold, when they're hungry, when they're this or that. In toddlerhood, when they're potty training and starting to try to dress themselves, you know, that's always a fun one. <clears throat> the, having the parent be consistent and provide age-appropriate boundaries for that child, you know, saying, well, whatever you want to wear probably doesn't work. At least it didn't work in our house. You know, I had to <laughs> narrow it down. You can go in your closet and, you know, what's in your closet right now you can choose from. And summer clothes would be put away when it was the dead of winter. So we were a little bit closer to encouraging autonomy without having to constantly correct. When the child moves to industry, trying to figure out what am I good at? And then identity, who am I? Parents need to be responsive and emotionally responsive to children's questions, their frustrations, their fears in those, in those times. Parents need to provide empathy. You know, remember what it was like when you were 14 or, you know, some of us can remember what it was like when we were six. Some of us can't. Compassion for the person. I mean, just being compassionate and you may not understand why they're hurting, but having compassion that, that they're hurting. Having effective communication skills. Children learn what they live. So if they live in a household where there's effective communication skills and the parent says, you can't do this because blah, 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 that's going to help them more than growing up in a household where a parent says, you can't do that because I said so, and shutting the child down. So learning to effectively communicate and negotiate is really important. And that helps children in later life because then they can start communicating their needs, their wants, their desires their boundaries, yada, yada. And they need unconditional love. You know, it doesn't matter what age you are, you need unconditional love. And remember, that's loving the person for who they are. You can dislike the behaviors. You can really hate the behaviors sometimes. But loving the person for who they are and trying to remember and recognize that they're doing the best they can with the tools they have at that point in time, which sometimes is really hard. I just repeat that to myself sometimes. So think about it. What is it like for a child growing up in a house in which one or both parents or caregivers has an addiction or a mental health issue? What is it that they're learning about themselves, about others? So we'll start with addiction. Common addicted characteristics or common characteristics in addiction. The mantra in the addicted family is don't talk, don't trust, don't feel. The addict or the person with the addiction is the one who is pulling the marionette strings, if you will. So think about what it's like for the infant in a household with somebody with an addiction who has difficulty dealing with life on life's terms. Infants are exhausting. I love the little critters, but they're exhausting. So if you already have somebody who has difficulty dealing with life, then when the baby is crying at 2 in the morning and 3.30 in the morning, and four in the morning, that person may have difficulty coping and being responsive. 
They have difficulty dealing with stress, again, poor coping. They may have impulsivity, lack of patience, and poor distress tolerance. They just want it to stop. Make the crying stop. I can't deal with it. Neglectfulness. Not intentionally. You know, I have been working with people with addictions for 20 years, and I really can't think of a single time where I can say a parent has intentionally gone, you know what, I'm just going to be neglectful. They may not have understood how their actions were neglectful, or they may not have been able to deal, and they, they just couldn't deal. So they put Junior in the baby swing, and they just said, you know what, you, you got to sit there and, and watch Elmo for the next two hours because I just can't deal. Think about that person's context. They are doing the best they can. They don't want to hurt the child. They may not know how to help the child at this point. They don't know how to help themselves at this point. They're doing the best they can. But what is the child learning? The child is learning that they may have pain or they may be cold or whatever, and nobody's helping them with it. So they can't trust that somebody's going to be responsive to their needs. The person with an addiction can be hostile at times, especially when they can't access their addiction. When life is kind of handing them a bunch of lemons and they can't access that addiction to take the edge off or when they're detoxing, having cravings, all of those things can lead them to be more irritable towards the child. Children we know are very responsive. They're very sensitive to nonverbals. So when a caregiver regularly approaches a child with hostility and anger or being overwhelmed, the child actually will avert their gaze and or start yawning. And that's the child's way of trying to block, block that negativity. We also know that children, if you're holding them, infants, and you're holding them and you're upset, they pick up on that. So the more upset you get, typically the more upset they get, which is a really interesting exercise when you're a new parent at mindfulness and deep breathing and letting go of, you know, stuff. People with addictions can be defensive. They can be blaming, you know, I wouldn't be in such a bad mood if you would just sleep. They can be manipulative, obviously, that, that doesn't really affect the infant that much. They may withdraw. They may withdraw from others and be disconnected. They just can't deal. So Junior sits in a playpen all day long, you know. If he's lucky, he gets his pampers changed. Um, they may just not be able to deal with any more input. They're, they can barely deal with life on, the, on their own. They may also withdraw because they have no pleasure in other activities. And we see this a lot with, and I guess we'll get to it with uh, mood disorders, with postpartum depression. But people who have addictions, remember their neurotransmitters are just all out of whack. So most people with addictions, when they are not using, they are having difficulty because their dopamine system is completely defunct at that point. Justification, minimization, and denial of their problems, low self-esteem, and guilt and shame. These are all common characteristics of the addict. So this same person, the same little kid grows up, or let's take a different little kid, as a toddler, and toddlers have lots of questions, and toddlers make mistakes, and toddlers are curious, and toddlers are little balls of energy. Someone with an addiction is focused 
on just trying to hold it together and their addiction. That addiction is helping them feel, quote, normal, if you will. It's helping, helping them take the edge off whatever physical and or emotional intrapsychic pain that they are having difficulty dealing with. And when they're not using, they're experiencing physiological detox effects. They're experiencing withdrawal symptoms. So it's going to make them less responsive. When they're using, they're less responsive because they're under the influence. When they're withdrawing, they're less responsive because they are freaking miserable. So they're going to be less responsive and less attuned to that child's needs. They have difficulty dealing with distress. When Junior asks them the same question for the 13th time, um, they may get irritable. They may withdraw. You can see with uh, children, a lot, not a lot of times, but sometimes you will see parents with addictions who, you know, they're conscious enough to make sure that Junior is not getting into mortal danger, but they don't want to play with Junior. They, they want to lay on the sofa and be high, and Junior's just kind of sitting there playing by himself and can't get caregivers' attention for anything. What does that tell toddler, what does that tell this little ch child about himself, about whether he's worthy of love, whether he's worthy of attention? Hmm. So you can see we can go through the school kid and the adolescent. The older the child gets, the more aware they become of what's going on. And the more personal, a lot of times, sometimes, they may make it. Remember, children, when they're elementary school and younger tend to be very egocentric. They think whatever is going on, if mom's in a bad mood, if mom is, you know, comatose, if mom is whatever, that's something that they did. It's a reflection of them. They think that it's their fault. They see things, they also see things as, or expect peop, other people to see things the same way they do. So they don't understand perspectives. Cognitively, just, they're just not there. When they get older, you know, middle school and, and beyond, um, and some in upper elementary school, they may be able to see other things, but a lot of times kids still take it very personally if they cannot get the consistent responsiveness from their caregiver. I mean, those are the people in, in their minds who are supposed, quote, supposed to love them. How do these children feel, and what do they learn about other people? growing up in this other people are not trustworthy other people won't help me if i ask for something i'm going to get in trouble if i have feelings i'm going to get in trouble the world is not a safe place that's what these children are generally learning in a mental health situation with one one or more caregivers having a mental health issue again people with Clinical mental health issues tend to have difficulty dealing with life on life's terms, poor coping skills, lack of patience and distress tolerance. They're overwhelmed. They're exhausted. They're depressed. They're just, I want to go into the bedroom and pull the covers over my head and not come up for a week. They may be neglectful because they just, they're so overwhelmed with life that they can't deal with this little person. Hostility, irritability, withdrawal, apathy low self-esteem, guilt and shame, fatigue, and a sense of hopelessness or helplessness. So 
look at how many of those symptoms, if you will, overlap. How many of those things are common to both mental health and, and uh, addictive behaviors? What's it like for the infant or the toddler, even if parents aren't using? Let's think of a parent that has clinical depression. Junior goes over, Mommy, let's go out and play. Not right now. Mommy, I need something to eat. Why don't you go get something out of the refrigerator? You know, mom can't manage at that point just to even get off the couch. I mean, she's not even bathing. It's, you know, she's got pretty deep depression at this point. What's junior in understanding from that? Junior's not going, oh, mom's got clinical depression. She's sick right now. So, you know, let me see what I can do to make it easier. Mom is... Junior is seeing mom as not responsive. He's like, mom doesn't care. Or I've got to do it myself because I can't rely on mom. And Valerie raises a good point. When people are developing addiction, they can also very easily have difficulty being present and parenting because a lot of times many areas of their development slow down or get halted at the point at which their addiction really took hold because life became about them and their addiction. So they miss out on a lot of the things that other people are paying attention to and learning, which means it's harder for someone with an addiction to maintain adult responsibilities. They don't have the skills. They, they just don't have the stinking skills. People's reactions to things are based on prior learning plus the present moment. And I think I've told you guys this story before, but I'll share it again. I have this ridiculous phobia of bridges. I'm terrified of them. And I can tell you when it started. When I was in third grade, my grandfather picked me up, and this was down in Clearwater, where they have the bridges that open to let the big ships go through. And he picked me up from school, and we were sitting on the drawbridge. And, you know, we were stuck in traffic, and it seemed like forever. And he looks at his watch, and he goes, uh-oh, it's 3 o'clock. Hope you can swim. I'm like, what are you talking about, Grandpa? He's like, it's 3 o'clock. The bridge opens at 3 o'clock, and it doesn't look like we're going to make it over. I freaked out. I was like, the bridge is going to open. We're going to fall in the water. We're going to drown. You know, just, and he started laughing. He didn't mean it. You know, he didn't, he was not trying to be malicious. He was just trying to be funny. To this day, I am terrified of bridges. But when I go over one, in my rational present mind, in my mindful mind, I know that, you know what? This bridge is not going to open. It's safe. There is no problem in the present. And even back then, it wasn't going to open, even though I thought it was. So my prior learning, plus being on the bridge in the present, may trigger a, an emotional reaction but then I can be mindful and choose what's the best course of action here. How, how should, how can I respond that is most helpful? Generally, these days, I have to get over the bridge for some reason or I wouldn't be there. So I have coping skills to get me through. People's prior learning teaches them how to deal with stress. If they grew up in a household where when people had a bad day at work, they came home and they drank a 12-pack, well, guess what? That may be what they're thinking about now. When they're exposed to stress, their, their reaction, their urges may be to go have a 12-pack. Depression, self-esteem, prior learning tells us 
what's going on. Prior learning educates us about what these things mean, plus the present moment. So core concepts in contextual CBT. We've highlighted the importance of context. Mindfulness improves people's ability to be present in the present. Go figure. They shift from automatically reacting to thoughts and feelings based on their schema into being aware of all experiences in the present to provide more flexibility. So they can say, all right, I'm on this bridge. I'm feeling scared. I am aware that part of my brain is reacting from my memories of the past. I am also aware that this is a very safe bridge. I'm going to get over it just fine. You know, all that cognitive stuff. But being aware of your thoughts, feelings, urges in the present moment as, and understanding what they're, how they're being influenced. How do we help people do this? General awareness. What are you feeling physically? You know, are you, is your heart beating? Are your uh, palms sweaty? Do you feel your guts nodding up? What are you feeling? How has this been protective or helpful in the past? How has this been functional for you? When we look at things, we realize that in some way, the brain is trying to protect the body. It's trying to survive. What are you feeling emotionally? You know, maybe the person feels scared. So what is similar in this situation to the past? We'll stay with the bridges for right now and go, well, we're on a bridge. And, you know, I remember being scared, being on a bridge, thinking I was going to go over the edge. So the context, this is what's similar in this situation, similar to the past. Now, millions and millions and millions of people go over bridges and have no problem with them. So contextual CBT helps us understand why I have issues with bridges. What are you thinking? And really looking at those thoughts and addressing the cognitive distortions. Examining what is different in this situation than in the past situation. In Tennessee, we don't have drawbridges. So understanding that, recognizing that, well, this bridge wouldn't open anyway. So there's no chance of that. Understanding the context. And what are your urges? Knowing that my urge is to turn the car around and not go over the bridge, recognizing that that's probably not going to help me achieve whatever goal I'm after, which is why I'm driving across the bridge. Encouraging people to be mindful and recognize how their behaviors are functional in some way, how it is similar to a past situation that's informing their, informing their reaction in the present, and how it is different in the present situation so they can differentiate and go okay that was scary or dangerous back then but this one this is different i'm older i'm wiser i'm safer the bridge doesn't open whatever a lot of people find some solace when they start to understand their reactions when they start to become mindful of their thoughts their feelings and their physical sensations and their urges we want to encourage acceptance of internal experiences instead of trying to get rid of it, instead of trying to make the anger go away or the fear go away, go, I'm scared. Okay. That's, that's how I feel right now. Not telling myself that I shouldn't feel this way. It's how I feel and that's okay. Accepting thoughts, feelings, and sensations without having to act on them. I'm feeling scared. That's okay. 
you know, I'm not going to judge it. I'm not going to try to get rid of it or tell myself I shouldn't be feeling that. No, I'm just, it is what it is. Unhooking is the next step. And uh, Hayes talks a lot about this in acceptance and commitment therapy. Unhooking from your feelings. Stepping back and going, I'm having the thought that I'm scared. I'm having the thought that I'm in danger. Thoughts come and go. And using dialectics is another way to encourage acceptance of internal experiences. Um, I'm working with a client right now who is struggling because she's in a, in a marriage that, that is very unpleasant at the moment. And culturally, it is not okay for her to get divorced. No one else in her family has ever gotten divorced. And she's terrified that she's going to be disowned if she gets divorced. Encouraging her to look at the dialectics of what's going on if it happens that her husband leaves her. That she can be a good person, even if this divorce does come to be. Does that change the fact that she's a good mother or she's a good person? Helping people embrace the dialectics. You know, they may be grieving over something and really hurting inside, and that's okay. You don't have to make that go away. It will in its own time, but also giving themselves permission to be happy. You, know, you don't have to grieve 24-7, 365. You know, if you're happy, that's okay. And, and the, fi the final one is I can stay sober and be stressed. So I can continue to do this. I can continue to not drink despite the fact that I'm feeling really stressed right now. So I can be sober and stressed at the same time. Accepting those feelings, those thoughts, and those urges. Because when somebody is stressed and they have an addiction, a lot of times their addiction is going, you have to drink or you have to use. Unhooking from that and telling themselves, I'm having the thought that I have to drink and riding those urges. Acceptance of internal experiences can be really difficult for some people. So, you know, back here we're talking about and using dialectics, unhooking, and, and radical acceptance. Sometimes that's not enough. Sometimes you just need a break. And distress tolerance can be really helpful. And this comes from dialectical behavior therapy. Engage in activities that just help you get your mind off of it. For me, I go out and go weeding. I got a new weed eater the other day. Oh, my gosh. It's my favorite new toy. Contribute. Do something positive. Go volunteer or something. Compare yourself to times when you haven't been doing so well or compare yourself to other people who aren't doing as well. You know, that can help. Opposite emotions. Do something that is an opposite emotion. And usually that opposite emotion is happy. So what makes you happy? Encouraging people to do things. Put on a co comedy skit. Put on something funny. Watch the dog chase his tail. Whatever it is. Put on some... Uh, help yourself get into a different emotional space. Push the thoughts away. When you start thinking about it, actually use your hand and push it away. I'm not going to think about that right now. And I encourage people to even say it out loud. I do it. You know, if I start getting stressed about something and I'll be bebopping along, not thinking about it, not right now. Why do I have to say it out loud? I don't know. Maybe that's the extrovert in me. But I find it helps. Thoughts 
changing your thoughts to ones that are different. So engaging in, in reading a book or getting your thoughts on something else so you're not perseverating on whatever the problem is. And last but not least, sensations. Sometimes you just, in order to cut the connection, if you will, with the internal critic or that voice inside your head that's catastrophizing, you need to engage in something that has strong sensations. Cold bath, um, hard running, loud music, holding ice cubes, whatever it is that does it for that person. Because when you are engaging in something that has very powerful sensations, you're going to be focused on that and not thinking about whatever it is you're trying not to think about. So this can help accept internal experiences. You're not trying to change it. You're not trying to, you know, make a silk purse out of a sow's ear or whatever you want to say. What you're trying to do is just get some space from it for a few minutes until you can figure out how to make a conscious choice for action. Focus on adding versus eliminating. And part of this is just semantic, but it is an important semantic. Instead of trying to get rid of depression, well, if you are happy, then you are likely not going to be as depressed. You may have some times when you're depressed, but what does a rich and meaningful life look like to you? And how can you make that happen? So instead of trying to get rid of something, we're moving towards a goal. We're moving towards that great and powerful Oz. That's what we're trying to do. When, we're, when we talk about depression, what do we do to eliminate depression? You know, when we eliminate these things, we say, stop doing this, stop doing that, whatever. What are people left with when we eliminate the depression? You know, we've taken away a lot of the pain, but have we added any happy? Probably not. That's like when you try to, when you always punish a child. If you punish and constantly extinguish behaviors, then the child is going to be left going, I have no way to react. Everything I've tried, I've gotten punished for, so I don't know how to react. We want to add things. Instead of taking away something and going, you can't do that, we say, how about you do this instead? In addiction, there are a lot of things we do to eliminate addiction. We can detox somebody. We can make them abstain. We can do a lot of other things. But if that addiction was there for a reason, which it was, it was helping them survive, and we don't provide them new coping skills, we don't help them have the tools they need for this rich and meaningful life, then they're going to be kind of stuck. So we want to focus on adding tools and adding enrichment. We want to help them accept feelings, thoughts, and reactions and change their relationship with them. Instead of saying, I'm depressed and I've got to get rid of this depression, saying, I'm depressed and I really am curious about what's causing it, and what I can do in order to improve the next moment. We want to help people increase awareness. One of the ways that you can do that, and this is, you know, a pretty traditional acceptance and commitment therapy activity, um, ask people to look at these different categories and identify which ones are important in their rich and meaningful life and what it looks like now and what they want it to look like. So let's take intimate relationships, their relationship with their partner. Right now, maybe that relationship is kind of rocky, and that's contributing to their stress and their anxiety, which makes them want to use or whatever. Okay. In a rich and meaningful life, when you're happy, however you want to say it, 
what does that relationship look like? What's different? And how can we start moving in that direction? Same thing with the family. So with your aunts, uncles, nieces, whomever. If those relationships are important, what do they look like right now? Are they healthy? Are they helpful? What do you want them to look like? And how can you start making that happen? Let's start on this journey forward instead of saying, I've got to get rid of the depression before I can work on this. No, let's start working towards what's important to the person. So the categories are intimate relationships, family, parenting, friends and social life, work, education, spirituality, recreation, you know, that's recreation being doing something fun, health, community life, the environment, and arts and creativity. Not all of these things are going to be important to all people, and that's cool. Encouraging them to identify which ones are important to them and then beginning to define what that end looks like so you can start making a plan for how to get there. We want to help people radically accept their feelings, thoughts, and urges. I tell people to think of their, these things like road signs. Take them under advisement and then decide what to do. A speed limit sign. It puts them down the road and you see the speed limit sign and you're going from 45 to a 30. And you're like, well, I could slow down. But traffic's not slowing down. You know, traffic is still going at 45. So do I slow down to 30 or do I continue to go 45? You know, using the information to inform your current decisions. Anger is sort of the same way. When you feel anger, that's like a speed limit sign. Anger is the desire to fight or flee, to really get revved up. Now, you can do that. I feel angry right now, and, you know, I may want to put my fist through a wall. I'll take that under advisement. However, let me choose whether that's going to help me move towards my rich and meaningful life or that's just going to break my knuckles and make me have to patch the drywall. Construction signs. When you see construction signs, it means that you're going to be waiting a while. You're going to have to be persistent and patient and wait to get through as they navigate you through the construction. The same thing is true about when people start feeling like they want to give up. You know, recovery is too hard or this is too hard or that is too hard. It's like a construction sign that's saying there's, you're going to have to slow down for a little while. However, you know, you will get through it at the end, just like the construction zone. No passing signs. You know, passing on a, on a double yellow line is, is dangerous. And you've got to decide whether you're in so much of a hurry you're going to risk your life or whether you're going to wait behind, you know, and go slowly behind the person that's in front of you. Addiction is sort of the same way. Addiction is a shortcut. Addiction is a way to speed past something that's unpleasant. But is that really what you need to do? And then finally, the rest stop sign can signal dep uh, depression. A rest stop is telling you, hey, there's a place coming up. You can pee if you need to. You know, check in with yourself and see how you're doing. Depression is your body going, whoa. You need to slow down. I, I am holding on to those excitatory neurochemicals for some reason. You need to check in with yourself and see what needs to happen because you probably need to slow down or get something in check. So those are my, those are my radical acceptance speed limit signs. You're never going to look at street signs the same again. Then we want to enhance motivation. Once people have accepted 
become aware of their feelings and accepted their feelings radically and said, all right, it is what it is. I understand the function. Let me see how I can better meet my, better meet my needs. We need to enhance their motivation for change. Understanding motivation for change as well as no change in the context of the person's rich and meaningful life is important to motivate purposeful action. So you want to mitigate these things. You want to ask them, what are the benefits to what you're doing right now? What are the benefits to depression? And a lot of people look at you and go, there's no benefit to depression. Yeah, there is. Your brain, your body is holding on to those excitatory neurotransmitters for some reason. You know, you were stressed for too long, which, you know, led to hypocortisolism. You, you know, whatever the case may be, you're grieving and you're trying to deal with that and your brain's going, I'm using a lot of energy over here to deal with this stuff. You need to slow your roll in these other areas of your life. There's a lot of things that depression could mean, but depression means something. It's your body saying, I can't do it anymore. I need to slow down for some reason. Addiction. We've, you know, the benefits to addiction are usually escape from something. The drawbacks to change. Why would somebody not want to get over depression? Well, you know, once they recover, then the risk of relapse is great and or could be great, and they could fear the fall. They could fear getting depressed again. They could fear the hard work that it's going to take to get happy after being depressed. Some people embrace the depression as an identity and are rewarded by the amount of attention and caretaking they get when they are depressed. Now, that's not everybody. But we need to look at, you know, what are the drawbacks to getting better? What's, what are your apprehensions? What are the drawbacks to changing an addiction? Well, again, the risk of relapse, not having this thing that has helped you feel better when it seemed like nothing else could, etc. So we want to mitigate all of these. We want to help them find other ways to meet these needs that the depression or the addiction met. And we want to help them find ways to deal with the drawbacks to change so it doesn't seem so scary. We want to enhance the benefits to change. We want to make them really get excited about all the opportunities and things that will be different and better when they are in recovery. And we want to enhance the drawbacks to staying the same. We want them to remember all the reasons that this kind of sucks right now and they really want to get into recovery. Use a broad functional approach. There are common mechanisms underlying a lot of things. Depression, low self-esteem, addiction, anxiety. Transdiagnostic approach, like I said earlier, says that there are a lot of commonalities to all of these things. So if we start pulling on or addressing one of these things, then it may actually help more than one diagnosis. Shoulds and shouldn'ts. We want to help people use their acceptance skills in order to get over their shoulds and shouldn'ts. I should feel, I shouldn't think, or I should be. If we help them understand who says you should feel, in what way is that helpful to you, and then help them work on that. Who says you shouldn't feel this way? What does it mean if you do feel this way? 
and help them look at you know, why are they telling themselves that? How is that helpful? You know, maybe it's to get somebody's approval or acceptance or whatever. And then help them figure out another way to meet that need. Help them work on self-acceptance for how they feel, how they think, and how they are. Instead of saying, I should or I shouldn't, I am. And I'm okay with that. Lack of awareness of needs and wants. We can help people with mindfulness, encouraging them to become aware of their thoughts, their feelings, their urges, their sensations, in order to help them prevent their vulnerabilities so they're not hungry, angry, lonely, tired, in pain, whatever. And we can also help them prevent problems by being mindful. They can intervene earlier. And we can help them with, with psychological flexibility address autopilot or rigid thinking, that sort of knee-jerk reaction that they get when they get angry at something they see on Facebook, they have to go do this, or, you know, they just get enraged or whatever it is. To address autopilot or willing uh, or rigid thinking, they have to have a willingness to accept all aspects of their experience without unnecessary avoidance. So recognizing the emotional, cognitive, behavioral, and physical aspects of what's going on. And the ability to ponder multiple possible actions and thoughts and consciously choose which action and which thoughts are going to help me move closer to what's important to me. You know, is, you know, spending two hours flaming this person on Facebook, is all that, using all that energy for that helping me get closer to the things that are important to my life. Is this really important? Addressing, whoops, difficulties with self-processes. Some of the things that we see in contextual is uh, difficulty with self-esteem or self-efficacy that cause or maintain problems. So self as content, there are three self-issues. Self as content is our narrative about ourself and our attributes. When we're overly attached to our conceptualized self, then we're not flexible. If you have somebody who is a great employee, they're a great worker, and they're in a job that is just that um, business is totally dysfunctional, but they don't want to quit because they feel like that means they're not a good worker. If they're just rigidly attached to being a good worker, then they may persevere in a bad context. Addressing self as content, encouraging people to look at who they want to be. Explain why each of those things is important. In what ways does the current situation prevent you from being who you want to be? Look at this context. What areas in your life are going as you want them to? And this helps people get perspective. This area might not be going so well, but in the big scheme of things, there are a lot of other things in my life that are going really well. So it helps them address any global attributions where they say, you know, I'm a failure. That's a global attribution. Maybe they failed at this one thing, but what things in their life have they been successful at? Are there other ways to achieve or conceptualize the same end? If somebody is attached to this definition of themselves as a size three, for example, because in their mind that means they're attractive or lovable, how else could they be attractive or lovable even if they're not a size three? If there's another person I'm working with right now who's, you know, just struggling so much because he wants to go to medical school and he wants to be a doctor and that he has to be a doctor. And if he doesn't, 
his his world is going to crumble and in his mind being a doctor is the measurement of success okay um, how else could you be successful if you know heaven forbid you get into med school and you hate it let's just say that what what else could you do so you felt successful People with have difficulty with self-esteem or self-efficacy may also have difficulty with self as process, and that's the awareness of their internal experiences, what's going on, the processes that are going on inside them. They have difficulty attending to their internal experience in flexible ways, handling urges and feelings. They may have that just automatic autopilot thing, and they don't have flexible ways of reacting. They also may have difficulty identifying thoughts, feelings, urges, and sensations. They may just not be in touch uh, with how they're feeling. They just act. And encouraging people to become more aware of what's going on before they act. Addressing self as pro process. Encourage mindfulness journals and logs. Meditation to increase awareness. And there are lots of different kinds of meditation. There's active meditation. You can find a type of meditation that works for just about anybody. Cognitive behavioral exposure. Encouraging people to notice when they get angry. What does that feel like? What sensations are they having? What thoughts are they having? What urges are they having? When they're afraid, what does it feel like? What thoughts, what sensations, what uh, feelings are they having? Same thing when they're craving. Encourage them to develop relapse prevention plans to handle these internal processes. Once they know what anger feels like, looks like, thinks like, then how do they handle it? What can they do to deal with their anger? And encourage them to make a committed action worksheet for each thing that's important to them. So if their relationship with their significant other is important and they define how it looks, then they need to make a committed action worksheet. What are they going to start doing each week in order to work towards that goal? The self is context. We want to help people adopt the perspective of the self in the past, present, and future, recognizing who they were, who that is different from who they are, and is different from who they want to be. We're always growing and changing and recognizing that at each stage along the way, we have different perspectives. Encourage them to have the ability to take the perspective of others. A rigid self as context or inability to take perspective may inhibit effective problem solving. So if somebody says, I'm a failure, I've always been a failure, I'm going to be a failure, I am, you know, the, the least successful person in my family, I'm never going to be a uh, measure up to anything, da-da-da-da. That's the rigid self as context. We want to help people step out of that. Okay, maybe you failed to meet expectations back here. What about now? What can you do now to meet expectations? And I'm getting ahead of myself. Encourage people to look at their rich and meaningful life, you know, how they want to be. What does your past self tell you about your current situation? What are those internal voices and critics telling you? What might your future self tell you about your current situation? You know, the wise person 20 years in the future. What are they going to tell you about this current situation? Are they going to tell you, you know what, it's not that big of a deal. You, you got to let it go. Or are they going to, what are they going to tell you to do? And what might you tell someone else in a similar situation? So taking multiple perspectives in order to problem solve or get input on how to handle a situation. 
encouraging people to ask themselves how their current thoughts, feelings, and behaviors help them move toward what is important to them is also really important in contextual CBT. Contextual CBT involves understanding people's phenomenological truth. Problems can arise when people think or feel that they are not who they should be or things are, things are not as they should be. If they're unaware of their internal feelings, thoughts, or urges, if they're unaware of the motivation for their behaviors or thoughts in context, or if they use rigid problem-solving and conceptualization without considering the context or perspective. Contextual CBT uses awareness, mindfulness, radical acceptance, and psychological flexibility activities to help people move toward a rich and meaningful life instead of trying to just escape or avoid discomfort. Are there any questions? Alrighty, everybody, have an awesome day, and I will see you on Thursday. If this podcast helps you help your clients or yourself, please support us by purchasing your CEUs at allceus.com or getting your agency to sponsor an episode. A direct link to the on-demand CEUs for this podcast is at allceus.com slash podcast CEUs. That's allceus.com slash podcast CEUs. To sponsor an episode of Counselor Toolbox and reach over 50,000 clinicians per week, go to allceus.com slash sponsor. Thank you.